Welcome to the latest edition of Cantillon Effects, in which I shall be dealing with, what else, the vexed subject of COVID-19, in an extract which I shall entitle, Herded with Impunity. For those of us in the field of finance, the last several weeks have been interesting, not to say hair-raising ones, with regard to the financial and economic aspects of the coronavirus epidemic, and a fortiori with the official hyperleman response to it. Alongside these, much greater issues clearly lie, and obviously one can only discuss the public health and medical elements of this episode from the perspective of an educated layman, and so these will not be dealt with here in any detail. However, there are several salient points arising from these, which it would be remiss not to remark upon, given that they have much wider implications far beyond the epidemiological or clinical treatment of the current crisis. Firstly, let us note the cacophony of conflicting opinions, the squabbling over the reading of the tea leaves, if you will, rushed into print, both with and without the sacred imprimatur of peer review, and the raft of contradictory scientific findings which this awful novelty has thrown up with regard to the origin, pathology, progression and prevention of, the complications to, and the possible cures for this disease. Of that mythical consensus so beloved of the climate lobby, for example, there has been nary a whisper. Now, in truth, such disputes and disagreements, even within the cognoscenti's own field of knowledge, are only to be expected, since such assertion and counter-assertion, observation and counter-observation, are intrinsic to that great human endeavour aimed at the dispelling of our ignorance, which we call science. But for all that, one can only hope that in a world largely given over to regulatory fiat, and extra-parliamentary rulemaking, the perils of empowering narrow clusters of experts, task force technocrats we might say, should now be apparent even to those deafest of deaf ears upon which our consistent criticism of central banks, for example, have long fallen disregarded. When politicians, whether from rank moral cowardice, or because of a more commendable sense of intellectual modesty, devolve decisions to what some have called an epistocracy of specialists. They place our hard-won rights to the pursuit of life, liberty and happiness in the hands of people who rarely raise their heads from their computer models, and much more rarely from any actual laboratory bench, to ponder on the wider ramifications of their often wildly overconfident, pigeonholed prescriptions. In the unfathomably complex world in which we live, Bastiat's famous window of unforeseen consequences becomes more of an inescapable hall of mirrors, one in which it is facile, not to say jejune, to advocate such and such a series of draconian measures in order to address only the immediate challenges at hand. To do so, as seems regrettably to be the present case, is to risk causing much wider and perhaps more irremediable damage. Just consider that in order to combat a disease which may yet end up no more dangerous to the broader public than those to which its members are routinely subjected, we have locked down half the world, lost a quarter of or more of our output and therefore our income, thrown hundreds of millions of men and women out of full-time work and jeopardised the future of untold millions of businesses, large and small. Meanwhile, the US Treasury alone has contracted a trillion dollars of extra debt in just five short weeks, a feat it took every other administration since Alexander Hamilton first brought his questionable genius to bear upon the matter 192 years to accomplish.
But getting on for $25 million per death by, with or from the virus in just this one account in this one country, might someone not have stopped to wonder whether a better method of alleviation could have been found? And nor does the butcher's bill stop at what some commentators see as the crassly economic. We have also potentially cost lives today through denying medical care to those suffering other serious ailments, such as heart disease and stroke. We will cost them in the near future, because we are not currently diagnosing such emerging afflictions as, say, early-stage cancer. We will cost yet more in the years to come, because clinical research and drug development have practically been suspended where they do not have some involvement in the rush to find a cure for the coronavirus itself. All of which neglect is due to a toxic combination of a sensationalist media, partisan political panic, and our own craven submission to a typically catastrophist outbreak of scientific monomania. Now, to pick up on just the last of these factors, we in finance of all people should be distrustful of predictions based on modelling. As far back as 1998, the melting of the wax which held long-term capital management's wings together provided us with one signal example, even if entirely the wrong lessons were drawn from that sorry episode. The hyper-mathematical nonsense of CDO cubes and the notorious Gaussian cupola offered an even more starkly biblical warning at the time of Lehman's fall in 2008, though again, the only conclusion arrived at was that we should thereafter allow the very same central bankers who greatly contributed to that debacle to implement supposedly reparatory policies far beyond their remit, with no expiry date, no historical precedent, dubious theoretical justification, and wholly absent any sustained and rigorous public scrutiny. This is not an error we should willingly repeat, an error of which only a Pyrrhus could be proud. More widely, we should never lose sight of the fact that, for our sins, the gates of Eden have long been firmly shut in our faces. Everything upon this mortal coil is therefore necessarily scarce to some degree, and hence its use is unavoidably subject to a series of trade-offs whose costs and benefits need to be decided, if not as would be ideal on an individual basis, then at least in a much wider, more diverse forum than can be provided by a man fiddling with the unavoidably subjective, inevitably incomplete inputs he makes into a patched-up computer algorithm of his own devising. The ease with which the authorities have either frightened, shamed or enlisted both the benignly emulative and the would-be Stasi majority into compliance with their extraordinary seizure of power is a sobering testimony as to our acute vulnerability to those who rule over us, as well as to the ultimate insecurity of our property rights and to the highly conditional nature of our right to free movement, free association and even free speech. Nor is this just the complaint of the conspiracy theorist or the Michigan militiaman survivalist. Both constitutionalist philosophers and members of the legal profession have been on public record decrying the ease with which supposedly liberal Western governments have allowed themselves to be persuaded to pass Nordverordnungen, which afford their executives sweeping possibilities of interdiction, surveillance, punishment and arrest, all of them rubber-stamped by servile legislatures, and all of them enacted to a resounding silence from the judiciary at large. This has been a time marked by a concentration, not a separation of powers, a time of welfare checks, not checks and balances. If, as the time-honoured dictum goes, 
hard cases make for bad law, then we should be doubly careful that the exploitation of self-declared emergencies do not make for the total suspension of law. As the great James Buchanan compellingly argued, the principal purpose of those constitutions currently being gleefully shredded is precisely to construct a framework in happier, more contemplative times within which the state must seek to contain its actions when the skies eventually do darken and the needs become more pressing. In contrast, our leaders have become increasingly carried away with their glorious self-image as swaggering generalissimos in the so-called war on COVID-19. As a result, they have been woefully oblivious to such compelling ethical and practical strictures. Faced with the perceived need for swift action, they have instead given rein to summary judgment. And bound by any meaningful doctrine of sound government, they have become as arbitrary as any tick-pot dictator anxious to preserve his rule. We must not let this virus provide an excuse for a further retreat of the Republic of Laws in the face of the Republic of Men, much less allow those laws, understood as formalised reflections of widely shared societal norms, to be superseded by that most insidious of bedfellows, bad legislation, legislation handed down on high according to the prejudices of the nomenclatura, the divinations of the court astrologers, and in keeping with the venal calculations of contemporary jacks in office. To do so would be a global disaster in the making. It would be to build for ourselves the prison bars of a fearful, not a brave, new world. If there is a curve worthy of our efforts to flatten it, it is this one, the worrying trajectory towards panopticon paternalism along which we now find ourselves being rapidly propelled. Thank you.